This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our MyHeart.net podcast today, and, and we have a very special guest with Dr. Steve Neeson, who is the uh, chief academic officer at the Heart and Vascular Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And today, our special topic is uh, statin versus supplement for primary prevention. So, Steve, thank you for taking part of this, and welcome at MyHeart.net. Well, thank you for having me. It's a topic I'm looking forward to talking with you about. Wonderful. Well, you know, with the high prevalence of risk factors and cardiovascular disease in the U.S., Looking at statin versus supplement appears very timely, but as physician, you know, we face two incredible hurdles. I mean, number one is the patient are so reluctant to take medicine, but they rather take a vitamin or dietary supplement. Number two, you know, we're facing a, a dietary supplement industry that looks like a fight between David versus Goliath. Steve, what do you think? What's well, your take? Well, we're, you know, we've got a terrible problem. And let me take us back a little bit to how this all started. Prior to 1993, the FDA had quite extensive regulatory authority over anything that was, you know, called a dietary supplement. So both drugs and supplements were FDA regulated. And uh, several rather corrupt people on Capitol Hill got legislation passed known as DSHEA. And what DSHEA did was it took the FDA away from regulating anything that was called a dietary supplement. And it gave regulatory authority, unbelievably, to the Federal Trade Commission. Now, this is not a scientific organization. They are, they, they are an organization that regulates trade. And so there's no scientific expertise. And what happened after DSHEA was the supplement industry grew and it grew and it grew. It's now a $50 billion industry in the United States alone. And there are 90,000 dietary supplements being marketed. You go into any you know, supermarket or drugstore, and there's just row after row after row of dietary supplements, every imaginable type. They're unregulated. We have no idea what they contain. There's no one actually looking to see if they contain what they claim to contain. Let me tell you how bad it is. I could go out in my backyard and cut up grass clippings and put them into capsules, and put them in a bottle, and say, Nissen's heart tonic, good for your heart. And I could sell them in a local drugstore as a dietary supplement. That's how big the problem has become. Probably very popular if it was $50 a bottle. You have to make it expensive. That way people think they're getting some value from it. Let me tell you how bad it is. I mean, Look, first of all, it's emptying the pocketbooks of patients who may not actually have the resources. It's diverting people away from well-studied uh, uh, pharmaceutical agents. 
things that have, you know, enormous databases of safety and efficacy, where we know exactly what they do, where their quality is being regulated by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. and by regulatory agencies in other countries. Every country in the world has that. And they're taking things that we really are really essentially unregulated. And they're making claims that are not substantiated by any scientific data. Let's talk about that. I mean, you, you and your your colleagues with Dr. Leflin, Leflin, I'm sorry, um, decided yeah. to conduct a study called the yeah. Sports Study, and and yeah. uh, comparing statin versus dietary supplement for primary prevention. So, let's talk a little bit about that study, Steve. What did you set out to do? Well, first of all, we recognized what an enormous problem you know the dietary supplement industry was. And we we uh, had always long expected that the dietary supplements would have no efficacy at all. So we went and we found you know the six supplements that seemed to most commonly claim heart benefits, particularly benefits on lipids, on cholesterol, and we created an eight-arm study. Six of the arms were dietary supplements. They were also an arm that got placebo and an arm that got the lowest dose of a very effective statin, resuvastatin. This study, by the way, was uh, supported by AstraZeneca that used to make resuvastatin when it was proprietary, but it's now generic. And we did this on a limited budget. So it wasn't the kind of thing you can do in a huge number of patients, but we did the power calculations and we realized that given the fact that LDL is easy to measure and very reliable, that with LDL as a primary endpoint, 25 patients per study group was more than enough to see statistically significant effects. And so we did this. Uh, We followed patients for a month. We knew that a month was enough for resuvastatin to lower LDL cholesterol as much as it's going to lower it. It doesn't really produce any further benefits at LDL lowering. We also wanted to look at, at inflammatory markers. So we picked HSCRP, easy to measure. And we looked at that and we looked at the other lipid parameters like total cholesterol and triglycerides and so on. Um, We bought the supplements uh, on Amazon. So we got them, you know, way everybody else, you know, buys everything is, you know, via online stores. And we did not tell patients what they were taking. So they were at least to some extent blinded. And we recruited them from within the Cleveland Clinic Health System, 190 patients, you know, was ultimately were able to complete the study. Um, and we expected that we would have findings that would be potentially informative. And they were informative. None of the supplements showed any benefit on the primary endpoint LDL, nor any benefits on inflammatory an inflammatory marker HSCRP. Resuvastatin lowered LDL cholesterol by about 38%. And of course, placebo did nothing at all. There were a couple of surprises. 
garlic in the form of garlic, widely advertised, produced a statistically significant increase in LDL cholesterol. Now, it turns out uh, that garlic contains something known as alicin, A-L-I-I-I-C-I-N. And we've done a literature search, and there's some evidence that it actually, in fact, in previous studies, does seem to, to increase LDL cholesterol. And plant sterols produced a statistically significant decrease in HDL. And so here are the supplements. Fish oil, cinnamon, garlic, turmeric, plant sterols, and red yeast rice. None of them showed any benefits after a month of treatment. The people we enrolled were people between 40 and 75 years of age. They were all primary prevention. We did not think we could ethically do this kind of a study in secondary prevention. They had to have an LDL between 70 and 189 and a 10-year ASCVD risk between 5 and 20%. That's the risk range where these folks would be considered primary prevention and where statins would be a potential recommendation by practicing physicians. Uh, we think the results are important. Uh, we're pleased that the study got a quite a bit of media attention. And that was, in fact, part of our goal was to inform the public. And the public heard, heard about this study, which was important. We think physicians already knew this, but we were hoping that these results could be used by physicians in discussions with patients. I know I'm sure this is true for you when you sit down with a patient to talk about the potential to treat their elevated cholesterol. You have a back and forth discussion. You may, I certainly do, have patients who say, I'd rather take turmeric than a statin. And we can now show them that these uh, dietary supplements don't do anything at all. So pending repeal of the DeShea law, this is about the best we can do to inform people. Well, it looks like um, uh, the FDA also heard about your study and they made an, uh, an announcement last week. They did. They sent a warning letter to seven supplement makers uh, to cease and desist making claims for cardiovascular benefits for dietary supplements. Uh, many people think that, that uh, those warning letters were not an accident timed a week or two after the article came out. And, and FDA does have uh, some authority here. You know, there are things that the supplement industry is allowed to say, um, although I don't agree with the policy, but they can say promotes heart health. Um, or promotes healthy cholesterol, things like that. They can't say it lowers LDL cholesterol. You know, there's a, a kind of a slippery slope here in what they can get away with. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I've been seeing on television several supplements being advertised to improve brain performance. 
And they often say clinically proven to improve brain performance. I want the FDA to get tougher. I want the FDA to enforce the law by the very strictest interpretation and take them to court if we have to. But we cannot allow this to happen. Let me also comment that there's another really big risk here. It is well known that some dietary supplements interact with prescription medications. Our cardiac surgeons have had people taking various dietary supplements that promote bleeding, where they've gotten into major hemorrhaging during cardiac surgery. They only realized later that the patients were taking something that interfered with platelet function. We know that some of these are cytochrome P453A4 inhibitors or inducers. And so they may affect the metabolism of prescription drugs. So when a patient comes in taking two, three, four, five dietary supplements and they're on prescription medications, we have to worry about whether they're in some way interfering with effective therapies either increasing toxicity or reducing effectiveness because of drug-drug interactions. That's a big problem. Very important issue. And and I really enjoyed also in your article mentioning that uh, dietary supplements are responsible for over 23,000 ER emergency room visits in the U.S. per year. That's right. And, uh, you know, Um, There's another thing that happens here is people think, well, if a little bit is good, maybe a lot is better. And so they take very large amounts of these things. And we know that some of them have recognized uh, hazards. A fish oil is strongly associated with an increased risk of atrial fibrillation. And, um, you know, we've shown that in randomized controlled trials. So um, I think the public really needs to be to beware. And I think we need a concerted effort by the physician community to educate first and try to inform patients, but also to be active in lobbying on Capitol Hill to get uh, Congress to repeal the shape and to come up with a with a with a new uh, approach to this, which at least does something to guarantee. Uh, safety. Now, I personally think that these supplements are drugs. Uh, They're just drugs by a different name. And some of them don't do anything. Some of them do harm. Uh, We know, for example, that ephedra uh, uh, preparations that are available over the counter have been associated with hypertensive urgencies. Uh, which is another huge area. We didn't study that, but it's been well reported that that can occur. And some of the emergency department visits you're talking about were due to supplements that are stimulants that have produced palpitations and other sorts of of symptomatic abnormalities. So I think we've got to become as a community of physicians more active in informing about this issue as you're doing here with your your podcast, but also to be to be talking with our legislative bodies about what we can do. 
So let's put things in perspective uh, as, you know, physician, you know, treating, you know, patients uh, for primary prevention. That means these patients, they're in middle age, you know, 40 to 75. They have no symptoms of coronary disease. They have no coronary disease whatsoever. They may have some risk factors, other risk factors, and also they they're at increased risk because their cholesterol is high. So we all usually approach with these people first with healthy lifestyle. And, and I preach to my patient, you know, food is medicine. You know, I mean, what do you put in your body? It does have some side effects. And some of them, you know, may not be so good for your cardiovascular, uh, you know, outcomes. Yeah. Well, look, uh, for people with uh, borderline uh, indications for treatment, it's very reasonable to start with, with diet first. Uh, we generally recommend the Mediterranean diet because it has very good evidence from the Predimed study and, you know, uh, increased use of olive oil and nuts, fruits, vegetables, less meat, and more vegetables and fish. Um, however, it is important, I think, to inform people that something on the order of 85% of the, the circulating cholesterol is produced by the liver. It's not from cholesterol in the food. Um, and so, you know, modest reductions in LDL cholesterol are possible with diet. But what do we do with somebody who comes in with a strong family history, an LDL of 160 or 170, they are not going to get to a safe level with diet alone. Should we have everybody on a healthy diet? You bet we should. And I'm going to tell you what I think is the strongest reason why. I think most of our, uh, uh, most people listening to this uh, know about the rule of six. You know, the rule of six is that if you double the dose of a statin, you get 6% additional LDL reduction. And so if you can reduce LDL by, say, 12% with diet, which is, I think, very doable for many people, then that's the difference between a 10 milligram dose of atorvastatin and a 40 milligram dose. And as we all know, the lower the dose, the less the risk of an adverse effect, you know, muscle-related adverse effects or... Um, you know, I just, it's always prudent to give the lowest dose of a drug that will get the job done. Well, if you combine a low dose of a statin, uh, we use rosuvastatin five milligrams because it's extraordinarily safe and very effective. You take five milligrams of rosuvastatin with a healthy diet, and you can get a pretty good reduction in LDL cholesterol. So I think diet and, and statins work very well together to get us where we need to go. Um, I, the data obviously on statin for primary prevention is, is overwhelming. I remember, you know, back in the days, the West of Scotland study, you know, showing a reduction of 30% of, um, you know, clinical outcomes, cardiovascular outcome. And uh, so, and I think it was reviewed recently by, by the U.S. Uh, Physician Service Task Force you know, yes. earlier this year showing that there was really no doubt uh, that what we were doing was the right thing with very little, very little harm. And actually, you know, interestingly enough, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is the most conservative uh, writer of guidelines. You know, many of us think they're actually too conservative. Um, 
You know, I've had the opportunity and, you know, when I give a grand rounds or whatever and talking about this topic um, and I have an audience of cardiologists and I say, raise your hand if you're taking a statin. <laughs> and almost every, uh, almost everyone put their, puts their hand up, you know, and, you know, it, <laughs> we believe this and we know that, uh, that there's no, a threshold for benefit. We've set these standards saying, well, five to 20%, you know, because guideline writers feel like they have to give some guidance. But, you know, I say is you can't be too rich, too thin, or have too low an LDL cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the people I know in, in our field, uh, you know, whose LDLs were, you know, around 100 or 110 decided that that was just not good enough. And they put themselves on a low dose of a statin because they want to be down, you know, in a level that's, that's associated with less risk. We know, for example, that the one of the strongest correlates of whether you're going to develop coronary disease is your time averaged LDL over your lifetime. And one of the problems I have with the guidelines is they're very much age driven. And so if you're young, you know, if you're a young person like me, you know, it's very hard to have a high enough risk to uh, to warrant a statin. So you, we wait until people get to be 55 or 60 or 65 years of age, and then we treat their high cholesterol and the horse is out of the barn. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So I believe in not just primary prevention, but primordial prevention, getting to people earlier. And the supplement industry is interfering with our ability to even think about this, because if people believe that a supplement will be beneficial, then they may never come to our attention. They may never get treated and they, until they have their myocardial infarction. And now we're dealing with heart failure and arrhythmias and all the consequences. So that's why we have to be out there with this message more aggressively. Well, def definitely the data is there, but you know, as you know, some of the main problem that we get is the anticipation of side effects. You know, you want yes. you talk to a patient about a statin, they've never tried it before, but they've heard, you know, about liver abnormality, you know, muscle ache, and they won't take it just because they're afraid of the you know, having a side effects. So I wrote an editorial in the Annals of Internal Medicine a few years ago entitled Statin Denial, an Internet Cult with Deadly Consequences. And what I did when I wrote that article is I went to the popular search engine and I typed in statin benefits. And then it lists how many, how many internet hits you get. And as I recall, it was about 500,000. And then I typed in statin harms. And I got five times as many hits on the internet. You know, every nutcase in the world that wants to sell you a dietary supplement is out there trashing statins. And what they used to say is, well, all you physicians, you're all, you're all, you're all on the take. You're all being paid off by the pharmaceutical industry. Well, here's the issue now. 
You know, I don't know what you pay for your statin, but I pay $3 a month. You can walk in any pharmacy and for $3, you can get a month's supply of, you know, the five five to 40 milligram doses of rosuvastatin. And um, at those prices, you know, there, there's nobody's making any money here. And so the idea that this is somehow a physician conspiracy, which is what the the people in these dietary supplement cults are saying doesn't make any sense anymore. And, you know, they are really aggressive. Let me tell you what actually happens. You know, they have these nutrition stores, these, you know, stores that basically all they do is sell dietary supplements. And I, I, I'm sure you've seen them um, and you can walk in there and you can get medical advice from somebody behind the counter who last week was pumping gas in the gas station down the street. And now he or she is, an, is, a, is a medical expert because they're gone to work for a store that's selling dietary supplements. It's scandalous. So let me tell you what I've referred to this industry as. I referred to it as 21st century snake oil. Uh, it's snake oil sales in the 21st century. We're better than that. We've come too far to do this. And we're losing too many people to cardiovascular disease to let this continue. You know, statins work, dietary supplements do not work. And that has to be the compelling message. Well, you've heard it. I'm Steve Nissen, you know, who's chief academic officer at Cleveland Clinic. Steve, thank you very much for this incredibly powerful message. It looks like it's being heard. Thank you so much for having me and uh, for uh, giving some attention to this important topic. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.